Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. Uh, my name is John Lanchowski. I'm president of the Institute. I'm delighted to see you all here. Uh, it is uh, a great privilege for me to welcome a newly minted uh, civilian of the United <laughs> States, uh, General Mike Nagata. Uh, and uh, I am, I've been waiting for this talk with great anticipation for quite some time. Uh, and I've been an admirer of General Nagata and his approach to uh, addressing some of the most vexing uh, national security problems our nation has faced. Um, he uh, has recently retired after 38 years of active duty in the U.S. Army, uh, 34 of which were spent in U.S. Special Operations. Uh, he has served in a, a multiplicity of positions within the Army and the intelligence community. His final position was Director of Strategy for the National Counterterrorism Center for the, for the last three years. Uh, he has served in the, uh, in the U.S. intelligence community as a, as a military deputy for counterterrorism. He served in, uh, as the deputy chief in the uh, in, in defense representative in our office in, in Pakistan. He was on the joint staff uh, as the deputy director of special operations and, and counterterrorism. He assumed command of the Special Operations Command Central and was responsible for special operations across the Central Command region from 2013 to 2015 and was heavily involved in the first two years of combat operations against the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Uh, he is one of those uh, rare uh, senior officials, uh, executives, officers in the U.S. government uh, who is particularly sensitive to whole-of-government approaches, unity of effort, working uh, as a team, uh, and has extraordinary insights to share with us about all of this. Uh, he has a distinguished educational background that includes graduation from the um, uh, from the National War College, and just without further ado, let me welcome uh, General Mike Nagata to the podium. John, thank you for that uh, generous introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. I, I notice a couple of former colleagues, friends, and acquaintances in the audience. I could probably call at least a couple of them up here. They could give my speech for me because they've heard a lot of this before. But hopefully, it will be at least new, if not interesting, for all for the rest of you. Um, what I've come here today is to give you my view, and it is only my view, uh, but based on the experience uh, that I have had for the last 38 years, particularly the last 20 years which I have exclusively done counterterrorist activities for the last 20 years. Um, my perspective on where we have been, how far we have come, and what we still have to do. Because there may be more in front of us at this point than there is behind us. Um, now, of course, it is my perspective. Um, the uh, And Perspectives and opinions are in abundant supply in this town. So I thought I would start by just giving you one of the things I always think about when I think about perspective. And it's a, it's a family story. It's a Nagata family story. It involves uh, the youngest of our five children, our, our youngest son who's uh, today a junior in George Mason University. Um, but this story was when he was about 10 or 11 years old, and he has four older siblings. And although we had several computers in our house, um, 
they were all occupied by one of his siblings, and he was very frustrated there was no computer for him to use uh, to play whatever game he was playing at the time. And he was complaining uh, very loudly about this. You might even say he was whining about it. Um, so, as all fathers everywhere since the dawn of human civilization, I reacted the way all fathers do. I looked at my son and I said, oh, stop complaining. I didn't even have a computer when I was your age. And then I promptly forgot I said it. But my, my son didn't forget it. Apparently he kept thinking about it. Because a couple of days later, my son came up to me and he said, Dad, did you mean it? when you said you didn't have a computer when you were my age? I had to remember that I had said it, but finally I did recapture the moment. And I said, yeah, that's right, I did say that. Um, and, and I was right to tell you that you shouldn't have been complaining. I didn't have a computer when I was your age. My son just shook his head and he said, I don't get it. How did you use the internet? <laughs> so perspectives are imperfect. I will t stipulate up front my perspective today on our journey to strive against terrorism is imperfect, but it is strongly felt, and hopefully I will communicate that too as well. Now I do not intend to talk for the entire allotted time here. My goal is to talk for about 15 minutes or so, I'll try to restrict it to that, because I'd rather have a conversation with you than inflict a long sermon on you, but we'll see how this goes. Um, the first thing I'd like to talk about is I'm going to pose a question that I will then try to answer. And it's a question I frequently got asked in the last three years where I was the director of strategy for the National Counterterrorism Center, arguably the senior counterterrorism strategist in the United States government. And that question was some version of General Nagata, are we winning against terrorism? My answer then and my answer today is the same. I don't know what you mean by winning. Said another way, I am unaware of a sufficient consensus across our government and across America of what we define as success, what we define as winning. Now that may strike some of you as very odd, given how often both senior officials, commentators, journalists, authors, social scientists, you name it, have spoken about our need to succeed over the last, well, officially, 18 years. Um, but here's why I say this. I can come up with at least three definitions of the word winning. And I'm going to explore these three briefly with all of you. The first one is this. We're never going to have another 9-11. That can be an attractive definition of winning. And by that definition, we are winning. We haven't had another catastrophic attack on our own soil that's killed several thousand people in a single day. So arguably by that definition we have succeeded. There is a however to that assertion though. It's not as if terrorists will not continue to try. As I'm sure everyone here knows, there have been several attempts at orchestrating another catastrophic attack on our own soil. Fortunately, they have either failed or they've been thwarted or some combination thereof. So for me, using this definition of winning is unsatisfying because it creates the specter of having to do this endlessly. Now perhaps that's simply our fate, but I, ask, I have to ask myself, can we not do better than endlessly striving against the possibility of another catastrophic attack on our own soil. So in my search for another definition, here's another one that I've heard people talk about. And it has its own attractions as well. That the United States has developed 
significantly greater ability, significantly greater skill, significantly greater experience encountering terrorist plots, terrorist threats, terrorist attacks. By that definition, we are winning as well. All one needs to do, I would argue, is examine how the various organs of the United States government conducted their counter-terrorist activities right after 9-11, whether they be military organizations, diplomatic organizations, intelligence organizations, law enforcement organizations. If one examines how we conducted counterterrorism activities 18 years ago with how we do them today, there is no comparison. This is for several reasons. One, of the, one very important one being the amount of resourcing that counterterrorism has received in the last 18 years. It's been an astonishing uplift in funding, manpower, and just general resourcing, as well as much stronger policy support for counterterrorism than we had 18 years ago. Now, I would not argue that all of that has necessarily been used wisely, but it has had the intended effect. We are so much better at detecting, preventing, thwarting a terrorist attack than we have ever been in our history. Some of the things we are able to do now are almost magical by comparison to what we were capable of 18 years ago. One need look no farther than the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. As a career member of Special Operations Forces, I can tell you, we couldn't have pulled that off right after 9-11. It would have been impossible for us. But when the Abbottabad raid timing happened, we were capable of it, and it was in large measure because of this enormous improvement we have made in our counter-terrorism abilities, primarily in the arena of using physical force against terrorists. And I'll speak more about that towards the end of my remarks. So by this definition, we're winning. But again, it's unsatisfying. And it's unsatisfying for a number of reasons, but I'll stipulate one that I will also remark on later. If we're honest with ourselves, we have to realize that despite all the abilities, all the prowess we've been able to demonstrate because of improved capability and skill, sadly there are more terrorists today than there were 18 years ago. Perhaps said more simply, I don't think that's what we were going for. If someone had asked me, I was a lieutenant colonel on 9-11. If someone had asked me then, Colonel Nagata, where are terrorist threats large enough or dangerous enough, they, should, they are of national security concern or should be of national security concern to the United States? I know what my answer would have been back then. My answer would have been, well, that's easy, four places, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, and Sudan. There are terrorists other places, but it's these four places we need to worry about most. Ask yourself this question. Today, in 2019, where is terrorism dangerous enough that it is of national security concern to the United States? It's a lot more than four places. And this is a reflection of the unpleasant truth that the phenomenon of violent extremism has grown significantly despite this uplift in skill and ability. So again, it is an unsatisfying definition of winning. The final one that I'll share with you is the one that I am personally a fan of. That the United States, as well as its allies and partners around the world, have become much more capable, much more skilled, much more successful in preventing people from becoming terrorists. Or said, perhaps more procedurally, that Appropriately, legally, in our parlance, constitutionally, we have found successful means by which we can identify those people and groups that are vulnerable to radicalization and ultimately prevent them from conducting an act of violence while recognizing that certainly in countries like our own, being a radical is not a crime. 
In fact, being a radical is protected constitutionally. But nonetheless, the mobilization of violence, we are preventing that from happening. So this is the definition that I'm the biggest fan of. But by this definition, we are not winning because we are not succeeding at this. As I've already mentioned, there are more terrorists today than there were on 9-11. So unfortunately, I've come to the conclusion that the definition of winning that I think is the best is the one we are not effectively achieving. I know this has been very uplifting so far. Don't worry, it gets worse. <laughs> Now let me turn to two topics, uh, and I'm going to try to do this in about 10 minutes so I can get to your questions, that I've already alluded to. First of all, I've already stipulated there are more terrorists now. Terrorism is larger than it was on 9-11. Why would I say something like that? There, and there are people, both inside of government and outside of government, who periodically challenged my assertion on this. But I think the, uh, the evidence for this assertion is abundant. And I'll, I'll use one particular example. It directly relates to the Islamic State. Um, the, the, the United States and the International Coalition deserve enormous credit for what has been accomplished against the army-like capabilities of the, what we have been typically calling the geographic caliphate in Iraq and Syria. Enormous military accomplishment. And the, and the participants in that particularly after they benefited from my departure, were uh, deserve enormous credit for this. But there are two facts that are inconvenient truths about this accomplishment. Number one, there are more ISIS combatants remaining after the coalition declared major military operations concluded. There are more ISIS combatants in Iraq and Syria than there were AQI fighters in Iraq when we withdrew in 2011. In other words, despite our military success, ISIS that remains in Iraq and Syria is larger than the Al-Qaeda in Iraq phenomenon that gave birth to it. Again, I don't think this is what we were going for, but this is what we have. Secondly, all one need to do is examine the growth of all forms of terrorism, including, by the way, the ISIS global network, which, a footnote to that, the ISIS global network, which did not exist five years ago, which now does exist, is substantially larger than the Al-Qaeda network became after two decades of effort by Al-Qaeda to grow it. But more importantly, the expansion of other forms of terrorism. There's, a, there's always been a spectrum of terrorism across political, religious, societal spectrum. The growth of other forms of terrorism, many of whom are stealing tactics, techniques, and procedures from ISIS, particularly the phenomenon of inspired violence. The growth of terrorism across all these spectra is substantial. And no one that I'm aware of in the international community has a handle on this. Finally, if you're wondering, okay, Nagata, so how do we win? Assuming your definition of success is right, that we become much more proficient in preventing people from becoming terrorists, how does one do that? Well, I don't have all the answers to this, but I have some suggestions. They are what, for the last three years, I've been imperfectly calling non-kinetic counterterrorism. Now, that may sound a little odd coming from a special operator like me. You know, my whole career and my paycheck was based on the inflicting of physical violence on terrorists. But after 20 years of effort, I have had to confront the reality that I've already mentioned. There are more terrorists than when I started. So clearly, what, I'm do what I've been doing, although I would still argue was very important and necessary, particularly when human lives were on the line, it's been strategically insufficient. 
in my judgment, the only place left to go is those methods of dealing with terrorism that have nothing to do with the use of physical force. The, the list of things is pretty long, but I'll mention the ones that I can personally consider to be the most important. This is not in any particular order. But the first one is literally called terrorism prevention, and possibly the most important one. Previously, it was called countering violent extremism. I don't care what label you put on it, but it's basically what I suggested earlier. Through legal, appropriate, societally, culturally acceptable means, identifying those people who are vulnerable to radicalization and mobilization to violence, and without using physical force against them, persuading them somehow not to complete that journey. Incredibly difficult, amazingly complex, in my personal judgment, far more difficult operationally than anything I've had to do in my career as a special operator. So that's number one. Just become nations, societies, municipalities, civil society actors becoming more effective at preventing any individual or any group from, from taking the path to violent extremism. Number two, becoming much more effective at contesting extremist use of the internet. Much in the news these days. Much in the news these days. But it's for two reasons, not just one. The one that tends to get the most attention right now is, is the extremist content ideology, narrative, whatever you want to call it, that is being propagated on the internet. That is important, but it is, in my judgment, only half the loaf. The thing that we've, the thing that I would argue the United States and the entire international community has not addressed as seriously as we should is the notion that, well, first of all, what the terrorist is offering on the internet is a deal. Subscribe to what I believe, and these are the benefits you get. It is a deal. It's an offer. Not everybody takes the offer, but too many do. Here's the, here's the part that I would argue is missing when it comes to the civilized worlds, including the United States, counter-approach. What's our deal? It is important that we criticize their deal, we criticize their narrative, we criticize their violent rhetoric. But do we have something better to offer? I would argue we do, but how much time, energy, and effort, and resources goes into formulating the alternative that is more attractive, more persuasive, more compelling than what the terrorist offers? In too many cases it does not exist, and I understand why. It's not because we don't have a better idea, but both societally as well as politically, it is so difficult to get consensus. It is difficult to get international consensus. It's even difficult within a single country to get consensus about what is our better deal. Because how I might characterize our better deal as an American might be very different than what some other American characterizes as our better deal. So what, I, what seems to me to have confounded our ability to come up with our alternative is the absence of consensus on what that better deal should be. The last three are easy to talk about. Number one, the world needs to do a much better job at preventing terrorist travel. Now that sounds easy. It is incredibly hard when one considers the world has been busy for several decades liberalizing international travel. It has never been easier, it has never been faster, it has never been more convenient, it has never been more available than it is today. Yet somehow, the world has to become much more effective at identifying a tiny fraction of the world's population and preventing them from travel. This is, this is not easy to do. All, you, all one has to do is ask anyone you know in the TSA or any like like organization anywhere in the world, the liberalization of travel has made what sounds like a simple idea, preventing terrorist travel, much harder than it once was. Next is denying terrorists their resources. 
Too often, what I hear in the counterterrorism community, we call it, characterize this as counterfinance. Now, I will stipulate, denying terrorists money is very important. As a former boss of mine, General Petraeus used to say, money is their oxygen, and he was absolutely right about that. But as the world has changed, other forms of resources have become more and more available, including, rather unfortunately, high technology capabilities, systems, and, and devices that are all commercially available and mostly unregulated. How do you deny, I mean, if we could deny all terrorists around the world their cell phones, we would have made an enormous blow against counterterrorism. But how do you do that? I don't know. So denying terrorists their resources is in large measure unexplored ground, but I would argue it is absolutely vital if we are going to achieve the success that I've tried to define here. Finally, we have to find a way we have to find a way beyond beyond preventing people from becoming terrorists, beyond contesting their activity on the internet, beyond denying their travel and denying their resources. We have to find a way to realize as countries and as societies that there is, there are very real reasons why people take the path to violent extremism. There are a multiplicity of reasons, but the one that I don't think gets enough attention is the fact, well, I'm going to call it a fact, it's actually my opinion, feel free to contest me in a moment when I get to Q&A, that at least some of what we're seeing in the growth of terrorism is a reflection of, a reflection of, an ongoing change and in large measure deterioration of the traditional relationship between populations everywhere and their governments. Now, I'm not suggesting the Westphalian system is about to collapse. I'm not suggesting that the sovereign state model is about to go the way of the dinosaur. But for a multiplicity of reasons, with every succeeding generation, their relationship with their government is dramatically changing. And I'll close by just giving you one example of this. I'm going to ask a question that I've actually asked myself. When was the now, let me stipulate something up front. Something as mundane as a library card was once a manifestation of my relationship with my government. It could have been a county government, a state government, or the federal government, depending on what library I'm talking about. When was the last time I needed a library card? I have a cell phone. I don't need a library card. And that is simply one of hundreds, perhaps thousands, of reasons or, or, or drivers that have gradually changed and to a degree attenuated the relationship I once had with my government. Now, I'm not suggesting we should stop giving cell phones to people or stop allowing people to buy cell phones. That's not what I'm suggesting. Many of these changes have been incredibly beneficial to human society. But they're like every other change in the history of mankind. They have unintended consequences. And in some cases, they are dark consequences. So as people, as every succeeding generation becomes less dependent on what have traditionally been government-provided services or commodities, it is inherently changing their relationship with their own government. And that, ladies and gentlemen, creates an ever-growing opportunity for a potential terrorist movement or group or individual to exploit. And I would argue 
they are doing it. Okay, if you, if you were waiting for the uplifting, optimistic conclusion, I don't have one, and I promise not to talk endlessly, so let me stop there, and I would be happy to take any questions from the audience. Please, sir. Yeah, I, um, after 9-11, I read a, several uh, Bernard Lewis's books on yes. the Middle East, and um, I noticed you did not once mention, uh, you know, this war on terrorism, I've always thought was calling the war on a tactic as opposed to what it really is, is Islamic jihadism. And I noticed you didn't even say, you wouldn't even say that phrase. The, uh, I mean, if you read it about Islam, it's a, it's a political ideology with religious trappings. But no one's willing to say that. I mean, we, you can't root it out. It's an ideology. We have to root it out like we rooted out the communists in the communist cell in the U.S. You have to be willing to call a spade a spade. And no, nobody's willing to do that for fear of being called uh, Islamophobes or whatever. But uh, I don't really care. But the, um, I just find it amazing that... that uh, no one's willing to say that. And I was, uh, I was in the OGA in Iraq, and, mm -hmm. uh, and I was in Kabul in 03. And, right. and um, I just don't, uh, we're, it's, it's just a facade. We're talking about a war on terrorism. It's a war is on Islamic jihadism. And unfortunately, Islamic jihadism, if you read mm -hmm. the Quran and all, is built into the, their system. Right. And, uh, you know, if anything, the, the moderate, Muslims are heretics, at least to the other ones. So, uh, but I noticed you didn't even mention, you didn't even say that. And we have, nobody yeah. in our government uh, wants to say that. Yeah, I, well, sorry, uh, uh, you are not going to agree with my response, but thank you for your question. Um, I do not agree that uh, with, with uh, the premise that this is a war against a religiously based ideology. Um, I do agree, because I personally had to do it for 20 years, well, really 18 years, I had to deal with other kinds of terrorists before 9-11, um, but for 18 years, I've done nothing but conduct kinetic operations against um, people who almost exclusively adhere to their own version of Sunni Islam. Um, I, you know, I've I've been on objectives where we've taken Qurans and other things off of detainees or dead bodies or what have you, all potential for the potential evidence we could garner from them. Um, but all my experience, including particularly my last three years, demonstrate that um, the phenomenon of terrorism or violent extremism um, is, um, is not the exclusive domain of people who hail from the Islamic religion. In, in fact, I'm on record in the, my last position um, as publicly stating that the growth of other forms of terrorism, particularly inside the United States, is unprecedented. Um, if, you, if you examine or ask, this is publicly available information, there, there's been congressional testimony on the score, uh, the FBI, uh, at least last time I checked with my colleagues in their counterterrorism division, they are having to investigate a large number of what we are currently, I believe, calling homegrown violent extremists. These are people who claim to hew to either Al-Qaeda or ISIS-like uh, ideologies and are in some stage, potentially, or allegedly, of trying to create an act of violence inside the United States. What gets less noticed, but it is a matter of public record, is there's an, there's an equal, if not larger, number of terrorist-related investigations against violent extremists inside the United States who have nothing to do with the religion of Islam. They are sovereign citizens, they are white supremacists, they are neo-Nazis, they are ecological terrorists. The list is endless. But the, here's what the problem the FBI has now. They are not doing all of this work, all these literally thousands of cases every day, because that's how many cases require investigation. They are having to triage the number of cases they have to investigate on both sides of the spectrum because it's limited by the number of agents that they have. In other words, there are cases that need to be investigated 
that they simply don't have the manpower to do. So the growth of terrorism around the world is explosive on every, whether you call it a political spectrum or a societal spectrum or an economic spectrum. And this is something I studied for the last three years as the director of strategy at NCTC. The growth of terrorism around the world is astonishingly large and it's not tethered to any particular ideology. The last thing I'll say, it's a little off your question, but I was looking for an opportunity to talk about this anyways. So I'm gonna do, I'm gonna use your, your question as an excuse for talking about it. Typically, when I engage people, both in the United States and elsewhere, about the relationship between a violent, radical ideology, whether it's religiously inspired or not, and the development of a terrorist, um, I ask it this way. I say, well, in, assuming there is a, there is a, there is a typical journey, if you will. Someone goes from average citizen of pick your nation to terrorist. Where, does, where do we believe in this journey from normal, reasonably normal person to terrorist, does a radical violent ideology come into play in that person's journey and become a motive force for an act of violence? We have now accrued over the last 18 years enough biographical information about terrorists that we can model the answer to that question now. And what most people don't realize is that what we've concluded by examining thousands of these cases is that as a general rule, of course I have to generalize here because we're talking about averages, as a general rule the exposure to a violent radical ideology comes relatively late in the journey. In my own view, this is a personal opinion as I've examined the data, I've come to the conclusion that a violent ideology is often the excuse that someone who was intending to conduct an act of violence was looking for. It's one of the last things to fall into place. Now you may be asking, well then what came before the exposure of violent ideology? My answers will not surprise anyone in this room. A history of trauma, either physical or emotional or psychological. A deeply held personal, familial, or societal grievance mental illness, in my judgment, after having examined the data, now this is arguable, there are, I'm sure there are people who looked at this data who come to a different conclusion. You, you, you're suffering from hearing one man's opinion here. These things are ultimately far more important than exposure to a radical violent ideology. Because I think these people were, gonna, were just looking to conduct an act of violence anyways. Kim, how are you? Likewise. So, how much do you think the effectiveness of um, the lethality of the Obama drone and great campaign combined with some of the current president's rhetoric, how much has that been a gift to those trying to draw people into ISIS ranks? And then the second question is, what do you think climate change slash global warming is going to do to terrorism? Uh, well, I'm going to take the last part first because uh, it's the one I'm least qualified to answer, being a student of neither of the things you just mentioned. Um, but to whatever degree the phenomenon of climate change or global warming, and I, I, and I don't know the answer to the question I'm about to pose, but, uh, but to, to whatever degree it is contributing to the attenuation, as I suggested earlier, of the traditional relationship between populations and their government, one example being a loss of confidence in your government. Now, I mean, under the assumption that global warming or climate change is a serious problem that populations think their governments are being ineffective against or asleep with a switch on or whatever variant it may be, that contributes to the loss of confidence. And as I've already argued, for every degree that confidence deteriorates or that relationship deteriorates between populations and a government, if I'm a terrorist, that is a rich breeding ground for violent extremism. Because if the government can't provide confidence, I might be able to provide that confidence. And therein lies my future recruiting pool. I'm not going to go any farther than that because, like I said, these are topics I'm not an expert on. On the topic of um, 
whether or not our lethal operations uh, in, in combination with uh, some of our political record, rhetoric has been a, a, a net positive or a net negative. I, I, I'm torn on this question. Um, and of course, I'm biased because, as you know, as you know very well, I, I, kinetic action is all I've done for a long time. So it, I doubt it will surprise you or anyone in this room to know that I do believe the kinetic ac actions we've had to undertake were necessary. Uh, were they always well-timed? Were they always productive? Were they always as successful as we wanted them to be? No. No, we, I, I certainly had to deal with my own, my own disappointment more than I like to think about. But at the end of the day, particularly in those cases where we thought a threat was imminent, when we thought lives were about to be lost, when there was a hostage that had to be rescued, in my judgment, there was just no alternative. Whatever the downsides were, we had to act. Um, that said, that said, and, and you know this very well, we haven't always had the discipline to match our own rhetoric. Our rhetoric has tended to be that, well, these things are necessary, but they're not the answer. Another way I know you've heard it said many times is, you know, this kinetic stuff, necessary though it may be, um, this is mowing the grass. Something else has to happen so that the grass doesn't come back. Otherwise, we're just going to have to mow the grass endlessly. Uh, well, we've been mowing the grass endlessly. Um, and it begs the question, why hasn't, why haven't, not just the United States, why hasn't the international community been able to sufficiently muster and develop sufficient skill and ability in these, quote, other things so that we don't have to endlessly use violence to save lives? Uh, well, the answer to that is it's everything I just talked about, because we, you know, as both as a matter of resources and a matter of policy support, and frankly, as a matter of seriousness. Um, these non-kinetic approaches to terrorism get enormous lip service. But if you look at their funding, you look at the level of manpower they're authorized, and perhaps most importantly, the degree of sustained policy support they receive, if you compare to manpower, funding, and policy support for kinetic action, there is no comparison. Um, and I'll make one other point about this. If you want to see an enormous example of sustained, energetic, and effective policy support, um, all you have, to, you have to look no farther than what has happened for the last 18 years every time um, our military forces or our deployed personnel, regardless of what agency they're from, suffer a casualty. Typically what you will see is you will see leaders, leaders of many different stripes, can be governmental leaders, can be societal leaders, leaders, leaders writ large. If they are given an opportunity to talk about what has happened, this is typically what they'll say. This has been a tragic loss. We grieve for our fallen. We will do everything we possibly can to support their loved ones, their survivors, their families. But the best way to honor their sacrifice is to persevere. In fact, to redouble our efforts, to do even better than we have done before. That's how we, that's, that is an example of vivid, sustained, energetic policy support. And it's been real. That rhetoric has been turned into reality. When there is a failure in, when there's been a failure in counter-messaging or contesting extremist use of the internet or terrorism prevention, typically in the CVE world, it becomes what it comes because local societal members, not just in the United States but elsewhere immediately misinterpret the government's effort to prevent terrorism as an attempt to spy on their, on their citizens, arrest their children. You know, it's, a, it's all a nefarious plot by the government. Um, do you see leaders rush to a microphone 
and say, well, this failure or this misfortune is, is very regrettable. We're going to do everything we can to take care of the people involved because they weren't actually up to nefarious things. We, we just need to support them. But the most important thing we have to do is we have to get better at this. We're going to redouble our efforts here. That almost never happens. And that is the difference, in my view, between policy support for kinetic action versus the near vacuum of policy support for non-kinetic action. And that has consequences. Sir? Yes. Uh, one criteria for victory or defeat is chronology. If someone would have said in 2001, in 2019, we're talking about how to fight terrorism, would I be able to make a prediction that in 2038 we'll be talking about terrorism? There, if you notice the democratic debates have yet to mention a single thought about the war we've been in for 18 years, and we'll see what happens tonight, but I doubt it. The patience and the perseverance that you mentioned about the American people in supporting a war will have its limits. 18 years is a longer time than the combat record of American soldiers, the combat record so the Korean, after the Korean War. Right. Okay. When, what is the enemy of chronology that you face? You, are you able to say that 18 years from this point forward, another person will come up and say something like that? What time but, frame yeah. would you have for a completion of the project? Right. I'm going to give you two, I'm going to try to give you two related answers. First of all, and I, I suspect you know this anyways, um, we're never going to bring an end to terrorism. Terrorism will always exist um, because terrorism has existed since the dawn of human civilization. We don't necessarily call it terrorism, but if you, if you accept what I do accept, which is the classic definition of the word terrorism, it's the use of violence to cause political change. Um, that will always be with us. And I know you're not arguing that terrorism is going to end, but, uh, but I think it's important to recognize that terrorism will be a fixture of mankind forever. Um, people will use violence to try to accomplish their political goals. Now, that said, that's not what you're asking. How long will the American people sustain the war on terror? Um, I suspect you will disagree with my answer, but I don't think there is a horizon to it. And it's for the very same reason. Because all governments everywhere are run by political leaders. And they're necessarily, this is not a criticism, necessarily their senses are most finely calibrated because they are political actors to be most sensitive to unwelcome political change. I have seen my own government try to walk away from terrorism in certain parts of the world several times and we have been unable to do it. I was on the joint staff prior to Benghazi, and we were very busy trying to reduce the scale of our counterterrorism operations in North Africa until the day after Benghazi. And we had to send everything back. Why? It wasn't because thousands of people died on that day. Now, of course, every death was regrettable. And of course, it, it is big news when a U.S. ambassador gets killed. But for a very small amount of mortality, we did a complete 180-degree turn. So now I, I've heard people call it irrational. I've heard people call it ridiculous. I've, per, I've per, heard people call it foolish. That may all be true. But in my judgment, so long as all governments everywhere are led by people whose senses are most finely calibrated to detect unwelcome or welcome political change, the, what I might otherwise style as con constant overreaction to small amounts of mortality is, in my judgment, my personal opinion, unavoidable. So on, to get back to your question, um, so long as American leaders are political actors, I don't think we will ever 
CNN, so long as there is a substantial threat that requires elevation to the status of so-called war, I don't think we're going to see an end anytime. We certainly won't see it in my lifetime. I, I feel very confident about that. Sir, you had your hand up for a while. Um, my preface to this is I, I believe, and I'm certain we have a huge ADD problem in dealing with pretty much anything of this nature. Uh, and that is, uh, I came out of Iraq in 2008 in Ivar province, and we're training the workers. The good old days. The good old days, uh, and uh, um, we left precipitously back in the curd, and then we have ISIS dancing in the same streets that we were walking around. Now How inconvenient. Have, now we have uh, thousands of individuals, men and women, in the camp. Some of them are, are hardcore, still hardcore uh, ISIS sympathizers or converts or whatever. How long and with what kind of presence feel it would be necessary to actually turn that sort of situation around all Germany, Japan, whatever. What, you know, yeah. what is actually needed right. to bring around the situation? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. It's one that many have asked, so you're going to get one man's, one, man's, one man's opinion here. But in my view, and, I, and I've been at least a minor student of the enormous effort the United States had to expend in, in both Japan and Germany. Um, and that, that comparison is apt to a degree, but it is important to remember that prior to World War II, whether they were, whether or not, um, particularly in Imperial Japan or Nazi Germany, uh, those were obviously pretty evil systems of government. But both Japan and Germany had had centuries of tradition of having some kind of governmental model. Um, that was not the case, as you know very well, in places like Iraq. Um, so that was an enormous difference that, that makes the reference back to, well, why don't we do what we did in Germany, Japan, not unhelpful, but helpful only to a degree. But I think more importantly, um, and uh, this is not original thought here, there's any number of authors and commentators who've said what I'm about to say. Just, I happen to agree with them. Um, there are so many things that need to be addressed in places like Iraq, but the one preeminent one is fixing their politics. And only the Iraqis can fix their politics. We, we're not going to fix their politics. Nobody but the Iraqis is going to fix their politics. And the one that someone who served in Al-Anbar knows personally is, and until and unless the Shia-dominated central government of Iraq finds a way to get on the path, because it will take a long time, to start treating the Sunni Arabs, particularly of Anbar and Nineveh provinces, like Iraqi citizens, it will remain a rich nutrient breeding ground for ISIS or whatever comes after ISIS. You know, people are already talking about ISIS 2.0. For God's sakes, are we, is, is that what we're going to do? We're going to have ISIS 2.0 and then 3.0 and then, you know, then we'll have you know the next operating system. Um, well, until the politics gets fixed, in my view, yeah, we probably probably no end. Thank God we're going to number them, because we, we won't run out of numbers. Um, but, but Americans aren't going to fix Iraqi politics. No one in the region other than the Iraqis are going to fix Iraqi politics. Only the Iraqis can fix it. A really bad, a really disappointing answer, but I think that is the answer. Sir, you had your hand up. Sir, you worked very hard at trying to build a whole government network uh, using our current system to improve our national security. Given that a decisive line of effort is not kinetic line of effort, and that the, the relationship between the citizen and the government is changing, the 
in time for a new National Security Act? If so, what should that look like? And two is, what should that practitioners, students, and us civilians um, be in that process? It is tempting for me to enthusiastically embrace the idea of a new National Security Act or, or some sort of wholesale reorganization. I've learned not to use transformation because my experience in government is transformations generally don't. Uh, but some kind of significant change. Um, what gives me pause is until we can articulate what that change ought to be, there is some prospect will make it worse. You know, it, it's not, it, there's not just headroom to improve. There is basement room to descend. And until I'm more confident we're actually going to go up until go down, I'm not ready to sign up for any particular impetus towards reorganization or National Security Act amendment or whatever the case may be until I have greater confidence that we're actually going to go up. Um, now, that said, you've asked me a fair question, so let me try to give you a more useful answer. Um, there, there are many facets to what I personally would consider an improvement, but there is one that is preeminent. And it is a question of what do we incentivize. As a government, what are we going to reward? Because here's an iron truth of human nature that I've certainly had to learn both in the military and frankly as a family member, father of five kids, people will do what gets rewarded. People will avoid like the plague what gets punished and they will care about what receives neither rather weakly. But what they'll really care about and what they'll drive towards is what gets rewarded. So the one facet that is most important is the question of are we going to incentivize? Let me say it even more plainly. Are people who decide to collaborate, cooperate, and integrate with people from other agencies of the U.S. government going to the people who get rewarded and promoted. As I suspect anybody who's been in government in this room knows that typically what happens is if you go off to do a hitch in some other command, some other organization, and then come back a year later, or two years later, or three years later, you're now on the bottom of the bonus list. Oh, somehow we forgot you on the promotion list. So in my personal judgment, the most important thing we should do in any kind of transformative, I use the word, I'll regret it later, uh, enterprise is to commit to we're going to reward the people, the individuals, and by extent, the organizations that are enthusiasts for working across tribal boundaries. I wish I could tell you that is the truth today, but I think anybody who spent time in government knows it is exactly the opposite today. You don't get to ask a question. Not a question. It almost sounds like the water nickels that if you want to get promoted, you uh, that, in my humble opinion, that's why Goldwater Nichols actually worked. I, 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 okay, now, even though I'm not responding to your question, I can't resist telling the story. I was a lieutenant when the Goldwater Nichols Act was being debated in the U.S. Congress. I have a very vivid memory of senior officers in my unit, guys who significantly outranked me. I, you know, I was a nobody. But I remember them talking in very caustic terms about this idea of joint organizations and joint warfare. I remember one particular officer saying, I'm an army officer. Why in the hell would I go want to do something with one of these other services? And then the law got passed. And as I'm sure most of you know, there was one provision in the law that still says today, if you ever hope to make colonel, you've got to do joint service. And I remember the attitudes of those officers magically changing. <laughs> Suddenly it was, you know, this joint service thing, that sounds like a great idea. 
I'm really not trying to make fun of them. I really am not. They were simply doing what all human beings have done since mankind began. You chase what gets rewarded. <laughs> but perhaps another way, if we wish to create better, we have to reward what makes it better. Today we do not. In too many cases we do not. So you had your hand up. Go ahead. Do you see Indonesia um, as like a strategic location for the U.S. if Purdue embrace this non-connected approach? It, well, I'm going to give you two answers. Uh, first of all, I want to stipulate there are no <laughs> Indonesians here to tell me whether this, what I'm about to say yeah. is a good idea or a bad idea. So I'm, you know, I recognize it's being recorded. So if I get hate mail from some Indonesian somewhere, I'll, I'll know where it came from. Um, but but I, 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 think, I think the Indonesians themselves, certainly people in Southeast Asia, and we should all recognize that um, that there is a radicalization problem in Indonesia. Um, I, I give credit where credit is due. The in Indonesians appear to be striving mightily to try to contain it, but uh, it, it does appear to be growing. And as you know very well, given the given the question you've asked me, you know the largest Muslim population in the world. So even if a small fraction of them take the path of radicalization, mobilization of violence. Certainly Indonesia itself, Southeast Asia more broadly, and given our inability to prevent terrorist travel in too many instances today, the existence of the internet to inspire violence, share tactics, techniques, and procedures, it will be a problem for the whole world. So it's in everyone's interest uh, if somehow we could make Indonesia a, a kind of living laboratory for what I would argue which should be a more effective non-kinetic approach to preventing terrorism from being created. Um, whether or not that's politically feasible, whether or not that's regionally possible, whether or not it's even practical, I don't know because I'm not an expert in Indonesia. But, but you know, I'll, I'll bring it closer to home. You know, as I've already stipulated, we're growing terrorists in our own country. Well, not deliberately, but the, the phenomenon of violent extremism in our own country has grown. We don't have to go to Indonesia to do experiment. We could do the experiment right here. And, and, and there, there is an argument to be made that if we can figure out how to do it in the United States, where we have to respect things like privacy rights, constitutionally protected rights, the norms and traditions of a very complex society across our country, if we can figure out how to do it here, we would learn enormous lessons of how to do it elsewhere where many of these protections don't exist. And I'm not suggesting that we should, we should, we should enjoy the fact that they don't exist in other countries, but if we can figure out how to do it here, there are places around the world where I think we'll discover, oh, it's way easier here, way easier, because the governments can do things that are completely unacceptable inside the United States. Now, that may have unintended negative consequences, that I'm not thinking about or not giving um, uh, due respect to, but we don't have to go to Indonesia to learn how to do this. We've got a problem right here. and We ought to tend to our own backyard before we start spending even more on other problems downrange. Yes, ma'am. Last question, please. <laughs> um, I'm actually really happy that that was the, um, the, the point that you left off on because I wanted to and Please. back to something earlier that you had said about um, terrorism being a growing problem, growing forms of it in this country. Yes. So most people, like outside the Beltway, outside of the particular field of people, there's something outside the Beltway. <laughs> <laughs> Perish the thought. It's a silly place. I won't recommend going there. Um, and there's a perspective that uh, the U.S. government doesn't say, white nationalism, uh, terrorism, the same way that they treat. Yeah, uh, I've heard that. Yeah. Um, so my question to you is, how do you explain to somebody that it's, that it, it's different, but it's not different? You know, like the FBI is doing things mm -hmm. to combat yep. domestic terrorism. So right. How do you get that message across that it's, it, just, it just looks different, it feels different, but... Yeah. 
Yeah, I do. I do. It, it's a wonderful question, and, and I'm going to give you. Uh, uh, I'm going to give you an imperfect answer. Uh, I've been studying domestic terrorism as hard as I can for the last three years, but that doesn't make me an expert. I would even argue the 20 years I've spent on international terrorism doesn't make me an expert because it's both phenomenon are so complex. I, I still consider myself a neophyte in both, but I'll, I'll tell you what I think I, I can be confident of. First of all, there's ample evidence. Uh, I, I would argue if you, if you plumb the testimony of FBI directors over several generations now, there's ample evidence that a very large proportion of both the FBI's as well as other law enforcement agencies' efforts against domestic violent extremism um, is substantial. That said, is there a difference? You bet there is. You bet there is. But there's a difference for all kinds of different reasons. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's an enormously complex array of reasons that are different. And some of them are very hard to argue with. Here's one. When people like me were overseas fighting terrorists abroad, I had three massive advantages that law enforcement in the United States and no actor inside the United States can profit from. Number one, when I was fighting Al-Qaeda or ISIS abroad, I benefited from the fact there's a thing called the Foreign Terrorist Organization Designation List. Number two, there's a crime called material support to terrorism against international terrorism. There's no such thing, and I'm not arguing there should be, but it's an enormous difference. There's no such thing as a crime called material support to domestic terrorism. There are some people starting to argue about whether or not there ought to be, but there isn't right now. Just those two things alone make it far easier for people like me when I was in uniform to fight international terrorism than it is for a local police official, or any local authority or leader to deal with terrorism inside our own country. Because there are powerful advantages in these statutes that don't exist here. Again, I'm not arguing they should exist here. There's a, there's a pretty decent argument that some of this would be unconstitutional here. But it's a, it, it creates an, a difference that under current policy, structure, and law, we can't change. Now, should we? I don't know. Will we? No idea. But there are some differences that are simply a risk consequence of the enormous differences that exist between how the United, can, how the United States can currently deal with national security problems outside our border versus inside our borders. Um, I could go on, but I mean, the, the list of things that compel these differences regardless of what political stripe one happens to wear, is very long. Now, I will, I'll close by saying, I think the time has come to review this list and ask, how important are these things? Are they still important as they were once were? I don't know, I, I, I don't know what the result would be. We might actually strengthen some of these differences. I don't know. But, but I don't think we should assume it's perfect. All right, um, I'm, I've gotten the hook. So thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for your questions. I hope you got something out of this. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Mike. You're welcome. Thank you so much, General. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming. Uh, we look forward to seeing you here at, uh, at future events.